listening to the Buy Sci-Fi Podcast. I'm your host, Carrie Pack, and this is your home for queer-positive speculative fiction. My next guest is O.E. Tierman. They are the author of the Aces High Joker Wild series, and their work features um, a dystopian kind of spec fic with a climate change bent, which I thought was really fascinating, and I'm so excited to have them here. Hi, O.E. How are you? Hey, I'm doing all right. So tell us a little bit about your series. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about book one. Sure. Book one is called The Hands Were Given, and it is... It starts off with a young commander dropped into the middle of a crew who doesn't like to take commands, and that's all right, because he really doesn't like to give commands. And it goes from there. So it's a bit of a wild ride. Um, it is pretty much um, hopeful queer cyberpunk and with a climate change bent. They're living in a climate-changed Colorado, where it can hit up to 118 degrees on a regular basis in the summertime. You can imagine what that's done to everything, the flora, the fauna, the people. Right. So the city of Denver looks a lot different than it does now. For one thing, there are peacekeeping drones everywhere, making sure that people behave in the streets. Yeah. Um, but there's also shade cloths um, strapped between all the buildings to keep some shade over the streets so that people don't die of heat prostration when they're walking in the street. It reminds me kind of of, um, you ever read Paolo uh, Basilagupi's, um, I can't say his name. I, every time I say it, I think I'm going to get it this time and I always screw it up. Um, but it reminds me of that because, because he does a lot of climate change dystopian kind of stuff. So it sounds awesome. Thanks. Yeah. I based it off of a couple of things. Uh, so Full disclosure, I am one half of a writing team, and I personally work as a landscaper, but I have my degree in horticulture, and I based out awful lot of the climate change science that is going around in ag and hort circles with people who are forward-facing, and a lot of us are saying, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap, how are we going to keep plants alive in this world? Right. Um, yeah, and a lot of the uh, people are starting to talk. We talk a lot in ag and hort with folks who do city design. Mm-hmm. It's smart. So we end up talking about, well, how are we going to handle a city that's hitting 118? Well, shade cloth is one thing, but that's a very day-to-day detail of the world. The other thing that a lot of people are using is called a slick tarp, which will shade your home but it's woven with uh, fiber optics, so it'll also make it look like your home's not actually there. It makes it look like it's a piece of desert oh, wow. or outcropping. And that's because there's a drone surveillance everywhere. There are seven corporations that own all of America in the world we've written. And the day you're born, your parents have to sign a contract signing you up to be part of the corporation they're part of. And there are rules in your contract saying how you can act for each corporation. Well, if you step outside of those lines, different corporations have different ways of dealing with you, but none of them are pretty. So pretty much 
America has become one giant profit farm. Right. That's the kind of stuff that terrifies me. So I just absolutely love it. I mean, it's, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I just like being like terrifyingly scared, but uh, whenever I, I just, it's the stuff that scares me about the future. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a lot I can handle, handle the idea of, I live, I live in Florida, so it's already hotter than Satan's taint here every day. And, um, and I've just in the, you know, almost 30 years that I've lived here, seen it go from you know, a warmer climate to like some, some days I'm just like, I don't think we're going to get like a normal year. I mean, we've had years where we get hit by multiple hurricanes and, you know, and, and that stuff is all part of climate change, you know, and, and it just scares me. Cause like, we'll have like re- just now, like there's br- these brutal storms going on across the United States and here we're having an unseasonably warm March. Like, Oh, yeah. Well, and I love the people who say, well, why are we having such a cold winter if global warming is happening? Well, because you messed up the jet streams, yeah. which means cold air is coming down too low and going where it shouldn't or going where it hasn't in the past. And hot air is ending up where it hasn't in the past. Basically, right. it's like saying, I have a fever. Why am I cold? Well, right. <laughs> I have a fever. Um, but you hit a um, really good point that these are the things that scare us. And they're actually the things that scare me about the the future. But they also scare me about the past because what I based the idea of the citizen contract in the books on was a contract that uh, a man named Pullman used to make his employees sign in 1864 um, and several other Rockefeller had one for his employees and several of the other we now call them the robber barons Mm -hmm. had for employees who lived in company towns in what we call the American Gilded Age that's actually where I pulled it from these company towns they basically they had their own script so their own kind of money you couldn't use it outside town and if you worked at a logging mill if you worked at a train car company a lot of these towns would be built out away from other areas either because the buildings were so extensive that they needed to be out away from stuff or it was a logging camp you have to go out in the middle of the forest to cut it down um and they had all these rules in place and out in the middle of nowhere where you couldn't go anywhere else to buy anything else People had to live by the company's rules. And the company set some really scary rules. And what scares me isn't what humanity uh, might do, but what I've already seen humanity do by studying history. But what really scares me is if somebody like Pullman or Rockefeller had tomorrow's technology, what would the world look like? And right now we're living in a time where we're watching all of these rules of uh, basic government oversight be rolled back. Right. All the things that their workers have very specific rights be rolled back. And based on those things, I'm saying, holy crap, if the corporations keep getting more and more and more power, we're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I am. Um, so 
funny, funny side note to all of that. I live in a town that was built by a robber baron, and our whole town exists because he uh, bulldozed a lake and filled it in and built a hotel on it. So, <laughs> you know, whatever. Yeah, you know exactly. Yeah, whatever. I've read about some of the, yeah, I've read about some of the Florida housing plans and, and draining the swamps quite literally. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's all Florida. It's like anything that so. PSA for anyone listening to this is thinking of moving to Florida. If you're buying new construction in Florida now, it is guaranteed being built on swamp. You are in a flood zone. You are your your home is going to be mud when it rains. Like you don't have, um, and they just keep building. And I don't. I, I mean, I, I look at where houses in my area are currently being built, and there's a reason why a hundred years ago they didn't build there. Yes, and I am so glad that you're addressing that because I have the opposite problem living on the high plains desert but the same level of stupidity. They're building more and more houses in places where there isn't consistent water. Mm -hmm. And um, we're already having problems here where neighbors in the south of my state are hitting each other with a shovel over water rights. Um, People are dying over water rights. Now it's just farmers and ranchers, but people are shooting each other over water theft. Yeah. And... I don't, I'm going to be really honest as a writer. I don't have to get that creative. I just look around and kind of say, oh, crap. <laughs> um, and then write what makes me go, oh, crap. Yeah. There, there were a lot of reasons the movie Waterworld was crap, but uh, realism was not one of them because water being like that be more, more like worth more than anything else. It's freaking true, you know? Like, I mean, even right now, you can go out and buy, like, a can of Arizona tea cheaper than you can buy a bottle of water. Like, water's a pretty hot commodity already. It's a really great question. Actually, um, so the group that I write about, they're called the Wildcards. They are a resistance unit. So there's a force called Democratic State Force trying to bring representative democracy back to America. Mm -hmm. And... They are one small unit, about 18 people, in this huge fight. But every unit in the Democratic State Force is nomadic. And in the West, they're partly nomadic because they have to drill for water wherever they go. So Pixar, um, I'm trying to think how to describe it. If a mobile home could be put together in many different ways by a couple of people, Mm-hmm. That's kind of living. Oh, nice! It's modules mm-hmm. that can be wired back together and taken apart, and you can drag it with a truck on a trailer. Um, they're very mobile. They have their own wheels, so every six months they just strap everything down and move. Or whenever the water that they've tapped runs out, they move. Um, this is partly to stop drones from picking up a constant travel pattern. Mm-hmm. But it's partly because they run out of water, groundwater, all the time, and not a lot of rain falls anymore. So they have one officer whose whole job is to keep them in power, they use solar power, and water. And her job is partly to hunt around for a new site to put their base at and drill that well and find the water and cuss when she doesn't find it and go look again. <laughs> I spend a crazy amount of time just trying to find water. Um, in the world I've written, they um, they wash with a powder that's 
ionized, so it sticks to dirt. So they they don't barely use water even to wash anymore. And everything's recycled. The problem is sometimes, you know, your filtration unit breaks down. So eventually you have to get more water from somewhere. Because mm-hmm. you can't keep recycling the same water. Right. Without some problems. That stuff terrifies me. I mean, and I live in a place, like I said, I live in Florida. It's pretty wet here. We're surrounded by water, you know, we're, but not, not, none of it's drinkable. <laughs> you know, swamp, you can't drink swamp water without, you know, um, filtering it or purifying it. So, yeah. And our aquifer, I mean, the, prob- the other problem here with Florida that I think people aren't really realizing is Florida's all built on limestone, which is porous. And, um, Basically, we're just a giant sinkhole waiting to happen. So if we don't flood, we're going to sink into the ocean. So I'm, uh, I'm just hoping I could sell my house before people really start to catch on. Um, <laughs> because it's just not. It's. I mean, every, every prediction I've seen, it's gonna where I live will be underwater. You know, the state of Florida will go from a you know adult looking dong to a very small child penis um, very quickly. <laughs> And I was reading a thing the other day about they're building up Miami, like they're building these condos still. And uh, there's literally like they're they're going to disappear. Like they they know they are and they're still building them. And I'm like, what the hell? Oh, I know. And the short term of current times are one of the things that really terrify me. They'll say, oh, yeah, in 30 years, that won't be there. What are you doing? Yeah. What are we doing at putting in something that won't be there by the time our children are old enough to pay attention to it? That's not right. That's not how you build a healthy culture. No. I mean, yes, some things wear out, but they shouldn't wear, but buildings should not wear out that fast. No. Um, and it really disturbs me that we're creating a throwaway culture to the extent that we expect buildings to fall apart in 15 to 20 years that shouldn't be happening yeah it it blows my mind because you look at like where i live there's this you know there's a mix of houses that were built in 17 1800s and brand new construction all over the place and i look at it and i just kind of go So I look at these houses that are still standing there, 200 years old, and then I look at mine where the porch is falling off. And my house was built in 1990. Like, what the freak, people? Like, are we just... The only thing I can think is, you know, when you said about the robber barons, like, that's the modern-day robber baron. It's like, if you can make a buck off of it today, tomorrow doesn't matter. You know, like, oh, I made my money. I got mine. Screw you. You know? And, I mean, in essence, that's pretty much a robber baron. (laughs) No, I completely agree. I think a lot of times this gets tangled up in, well, okay, I live in Denver, so we're having a huge conversation about how uh, our housing market is hyper hot. Mm -hmm. It's red hot. Yeah. And so we've had a real problem with talking about affordable housing. Of course, everyone's answer is, well, build more housing. And really, our conversation should be about you know, where's a feasible balance and rent control? Mm-hmm. Because there are empty buildings that could be fixed up, but it's cheaper to build new ones. Now, I'm not a city planner by any means. Right. I'm a writer <laughs> and a landscaper. But from what I've read, 
the balance is not in the lack of housing. It's in the distribution yep. because everybody wants houses near the jobs, but we have spread out the jobs very, very badly. So the houses near the jobs are suddenly unbelievably expensive and we're pushing people further and further out of the city who can't afford the crazy rents. And the answer everybody gives is, well, we just need to build up Denver. No, we need to start thinking. Frankly, I think we need to start thinking as a community. Yeah. Instead of, like you said, as individuals who need to make a buck. We need to start thinking in terms of what's healthy for our city and our culture, not not what's going to work today. Yeah. And I, I, we live, I live in a very similar area um, where I live. Uh, same thing. I mean, it's, it's always the conversation of, I see pe- people in, you know, um, community groups on Facebook posting for, I need a, you know, a small three bedroom for me and my kids. And I can, I can pay, you know, $1,200 a month. And I'm looking at it and, and they're like, I can't find anything. And I'm like, you can pay that much and you can't find anything. Like that's not an out. I mean, that's not a cheap amount of rent. That's a mortgage. No. You know, but if you don't have or you don't have the finances, you don't have the down payment, you don't have the credit to buy a home, then -hmm. you're stuck renting. And if people aren't willing to rent to you at that price because they can get more. You're just screwed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's it's unreal to me. Unreal. It gets really scary. But I think the biggest thing is we are in a form of late stage capitalism where we've forgotten that we are a society and the purpose of society is to work together for mutual benefit. Now for your listeners, no, I'm not a crazy Marxist. (laughs) I did grow up in a rural, I actually grew up on um, Menominee reservation in upper Wisconsin. Um, So for me, I always think in terms of the tribe, I think in terms of the community Mm -hmm. and Watching people just totally forget that they are part of a community and forget that they are part of a group really, really gets to me. Well, but I mean, suburban sprawl was designed to be that way. I mean, we went from living in walkable communities to now where you go from home to work, you take your kids to school, you go to the store and you're in your vehicle the whole time and you don't have to interact with people if you don't want to, which for me, the introvert that I am is just perfectly fine. But at the same time, you don't like, my husband was like talking to one of our neighbors. We've lived in this neighborhood for 10 years and we still only know like two or three of our neighbors. We know their names. We never see them other than once in a while, but it's. And I know four of my neighbors, my apartment building has three floors. I must have upwards of a hundred neighbors somewhere in there. Math is not my strong suit, but yeah, I know three and I know my community fairly well. It's a walkable neighborhood, but yeah, I spend most of my life in my car. And the other thing is we have taught ourselves to cut ourselves off. Now um, I have an anxiety disorder and I have hypersensitive hearing. And so I often will just put my headphones in and shut the world out because I don't want to have to think about the cat call I just got. I don't want to deal with the fight these two strangers are having over here. Right. 
I just want to ride through my day. But at the same time, I am cut off and I know it just because I feel like the world is too loud. But see, I think that's different from, I think that's different from not understanding community. Like to me, that's about taking care of yourself, but, but doesn't mean that you're removed from your community. Whereas I think that some people, because they might be actually very outwardly social and may not put their headphones in when they go out, but they also don't get to know people or they don't, you know, they don't care that their neighbors are. I mean, I'm guilty as I'm as guilty of this as the next person, but you just don't have a reason to get to know those people. You know, you don't need them. And I think we do need our neighbors. You know, we need our communities. We need our, you know, extended family, so to speak. Yeah. And you hit the nail on the head. We don't have a reason to get to know each other. But um, actually what you said is a huge part of what I write about. We need our extended family. And um, in the first book, uh, the group, uh, the unit really shows its strength in that it is a found family for all of these people. So the members of the unit, they all have their own jobs to do and they all come from different backgrounds, but because they're together um, and because of the work of the commander who came before Aiden, who's one of the main characters and has taken the place of commander, they act as a family. Everyone feels like they are a family. And what I did was each person, as they came into their position, they were mentored by the person who's giving up the position. And then the person who's giving up the position took a less stressful or more sedentary position. They were usually retiring. For example, um, Blake is the financial officer. He used to be the logistics and requisitions officer, which means his job is to go on grid, find places where they're not watching supplies very carefully and steal them for his group, food, medicine, all that kind of stuff. Whatever they can't 3D print by themselves, he steals. Well, he started to get old and he had been mentoring this young man, Kevin, for a few years. So he's starting to get old and Kevin's hit 22 and it's okay, your turn. But because they had that working relationship, Kevin has an older mentor. When he gets stuck, when he's not sure, he still has someone to turn to. Mm-hmm. And the team has a young, very driven man doing this very dangerous work who will do his damnedest because he thinks of this group as his family. It's not, you know, this is my job. Because if this is your job, your reaction to somebody's hold a gun on me is holy shit, I'm going to run. But if it's okay, I either dodge and beat this guy up and get that food or my family doesn't eat, you're going to beat that guy up. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's, uh, how do I say this? It's pragmatic actually to build those strong relationships. Right. Yeah. And uh, I had a lot of fun playing with that because um, the wild cards are actually a test group for the entire force to see if keeping a unit cohesive for many years works better. So in the normal force, you change your position whenever it's necessary or every five years. 
And in this one unit, they've been together, some of them for 25 years. They're not sent away unless they're retiring or they specifically request it. And so you end up with this really strong family. And the test was to see, you know, can we cut down on suicide and friendly fire and um, attrition rates this way? And one of the things I wanted to stress in the book is, yes, when you feel like you belong, when you feel like you're part of a community and a family, a lot of terrible things that happen in our society go down. So I wrote about the unit having the lowest suicide rate, the highest success rate, and a lot of other really cool things going on because they're so tight, Mm -hmm. because they're our family. And the only downside of that is um, when the commander who started the base 25 years ago got cancer, they couldn't steal the medicine he needed and he died. And so the reason that Aiden was put in his place is because the unit kind of, <laughs> let's just say they mourned creatively. So they pranked two new commanders until the guys begged for transfers and then they got them. So that, you know, that pain, that grief can become really, really dangerous when it's mixed with guilt and guilt will eat you alive. It will kill you. Um, So is that series complete now? Are you still writing in that series? I am on book three of seven. Oh, wow. So there's two two books out right now. And I just sent a third to the beta readers. And um, things have gotten uh, a lot more creative as it's gone on. And I'm really excited to be writing in a longer universe because I can slowly build things up. Right. In in jokes. Because... This group loves pranks, and I love writing pranks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, pr- I wrote I wrote a fanfic once that was like based on these these people like telling t- stories about the best pranks they ever did. So that was fun. So I got to crowdsource that one. I was like, "So tell me the best prank you ever played." <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, well, I used I that- used to friends like she had some from her high school, and she well, I used a couple of them, and like because they're literally just it's kind of like that scene in Jaws where they're like trading scars, right? And uh, I'm just they're literally just trading like war stories about the pranks they've played, and it was pretty fun. So I love I love writing. I don't like pranks in real life, but I love writing about them. I love reading about them. So I think even pranks in real life can be sort of fun. So I come from a huge extended family. Of um, I have 27 first cousins. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm half Irish and half Menominee, so that yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, I come from this background where. Poking fun at each other gently is kind of a way of showing how much you love each other. Right. I also grew up watching MASH. So (laughs) very early on, I got the sense that wit used well was was the goal. Yes. Um, So a lot of, I feel like a lot of MASH has ended up in these books. (laughs) To me, that's a better selling point as far as I'm concerned. So. Well, thank you. Uh, my my writing partner balances me out and makes sure we get more Firefly in there. Mm, yes. Just, yeah. 
All good. Um, All good stuff. Yeah. And between the two, you kind of get that cranky, you know, I'm going to overwrite your personnel file with something goofy, but I love you anyway, kind of stuff. <laughs> so when does book three come out? Do you have a release date for it yet? Book three is tentatively slated for July. Awesome. Um, that's soon. That's real. That's great. Yeah. I would love it to be 4th of July for um, the meaningful aspect, but I won't put that, that down for sure. Yeah. You never want to like hold yourself. It's like, um, you know, just in case. <laughs> yeah. Well, right now I'm working on the production of the audiobook um, for book one. And so I'm also kind of tentatively going to say that's going to be out in the next couple of months. And I'm really excited about that. It's being read by Kurt Graves, who does a lot of other really cool um, LGBT research or reading for other authors like Gail Carriger. Yeah. Um, so when he said yes, uh, my writing partner and I just went, looked at each other and went, <laughs> Audiobooks in general to me are just exciting. Like it's like this, when someone else is reading what you've written aloud, like it's just fun. It's just fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when um, we listened to the 15 minute sample we were just grinning at each other <laughs> the whole time it's it's really like getting to hear your characters come to life in a way so it's just it's yeah it's it's cool and i even and i say that even when i did i've only i've, I've got one audiobook out sort of i'm i've still got to tweak some things on it but and i did it i did the narration on it cuz i was like i you know i have the equipment i can make this happen um and I really actually had a lot of fun doing it. So anyway, I'm hoping I'll get to I'll get to do more. If, if I'll do my own, if nothing else. But you know, really cool. <laughs> yeah, it is fun. So if uh, if my listeners wanted to get in touch with you online, or you on Twitter, you face on Facebook, where can they get in touch with you? Um, we are on Facebook at Aces High Jokers Wild. If you type that in, look for a symbol of a. Uh, playing card joker on its side, um, winking. Um, and that's us. We are on, um, Twitter at OE Tierman and the O is the at sign. Nice. So I put all these in the, uh, notes for you to make sure that you can pass them around. And we have a website. It's aceshighjokerswild.com. And we are on Amazon for sure. Just look up O and that's T E A R M A N N. And I'll be sure to to link to all that in, in my show notes. Um, but yeah, I was really easy to find. I looked you up on, I think I looked you up on Goodreads just to see, you know, um, your series. And it was real easy once I just searched the last name. It was like the first thing that came up. So it is easy to find, which is good. Um, well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great chatting with you. And I'm actually really stoked for this series. You got me sold. I'm, like I said, I'm a, I'm a sucker for, for dystopian climate change stuff. So hopefully hopefully, some other people will be like, yeah, I got to read that too. Well, thank you for having me on. And uh, just for your, your listeners, the series is mostly about hope. And all these dark things are happening, but we can still have hope and we can still hang on to each other and we can still laugh. Yeah. So I, I hope that I'm able to pass along some hope to folks. Very important. Very important. You've been listening to the Bi-Sci-Fi Podcast. 
find us online at bysci-fi podcast.wordpress.com and on Twitter at bysci-fi.